I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode four of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Nicholas Prococo. Nick has more than 19 years of information security experience and is currently the Chief Information Security Officer at Uptake. Prior to Uptake, Nick was the Vice President of Global Services at Rapid7. Nick has also been a director at KPNG and the head of Spider Labs at Trustwave, where he led more than 2,000 incident response and forensic investigations globally, ran thousands of ethical hacking and application security tests for clients, and conducted bleeding-edge security research to improve Trustwave's products. Before Trustwave, Nick ran the security consulting practices at VeriSign and Internet Security Systems. In 2004, he drafted an application security framework that became known as the Payment Application Best Practices, or PABP. In 2008, this framework was adopted as a global standard called Payment Application Data Security Standard, or PADSS. As a speaker, he's provided unique insight around security breaches, malware, mobile security, and trends to the public at Black Hat, DEF CON, and OWASP, as well as to private audiences, including the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. CERT, Interpol, and the United States Secret Service. Nick's research has been featured by media including The Washington Post, PC World, CNET, Wired, Dark Reading, Fox News, and many, many more media outlets. Nick is also the creator of ThoughtCon, a hacking conference held in Chicago each year, and a co-founder in the Calvary Movement. In this interview, we'll discuss his early start with computers, what is a hacker by his definition, developing a methodology for penetration testing, the Spider Lab's name and how he developed it, when you should evaluate opportunities, his personal drink a different beer a day contest, research and public disclosure of vulnerabilities, how to secure internet connected devices, where he recruits talent, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Okay, Nick Prococo from Uptake is joining us on Cybersecurity Interviews. Nick, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks. And uh, I'm sure by the time this airs, your Cubs will have won the World Series at this point. I'm pretty sure they pretty will sure have. pretty sure that's yes, going to yeah. happen? So you are a big Cubs fan, though, right? Yes, I am. Uh, that's good. And uh, have, you, have you been in Chicago your whole life? or I have. I grew up here. Yeah. 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 So I've been here for, what, 41 years? Yeah. Yeah. But got to travel the world and see everywhere else. Yes, but, I've been basically everywhere. But come yeah. back to Chicago is, yes. is home. That's great. Yeah. That's great. What do you like about Chicago? I just, I, I think think it's home, right? I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, you know, I was born here. I um, have been in the city. I lived in the city itself for about 20 years. I grew up in the suburbs. Um, but it's, you know, my friends and my family are here, and that's, that's where I always want to come back to. Yeah. And if I remember from, uh, from some of the other talks, said you, you really got started with technology and computers probably around age six. Yeah. What was that? If you can uh, kind of share that story, I thought it was a kind of interesting story, very similar to mine, because I kind of plopped down in front of a computer at age six myself. Yeah, so how that all came about, um, I was about six years old, and I used to look at the funnies. Every Sunday morning, my dad would pull out, he had a Sunday paper, pull it out, 
give me the funnies. I'd flip through it. I would take silly putty and squish it down on the, on the, on the, on the cartoons and pull it off and make, you know, make different shapes and things. And I remember actually looking down at an advertisement that was on the back of the funnies. And I, I wasn't the best reader at the time, and so I, but I can read the words free computer. Um, or I, you know, <laughs> I was able to understand that. And so I walked over to my parents and said, hey, there's this place where we can get a free computer. And they sort of took a look at it and they go, oh, this is a timeshare kind of thing, a timeshare seminar. We're not going to that. And so I, I guess I never stopped asking them about that because in a, in a couple of weeks after that, I, we ended up going to this timeshare seminar where they sort of siphoned off um, my sister and I into a playroom and they chatted with my parents for about four hours to try to get them to sign up for some timeshare, which they never did. They never signed up for it. But out of that, we walked away with a Timex um, Sinclair 1000 computer. Okay. Um, and so I, I, be- I believe it was in the year 1982 is when, is when that happened, um, right before I turned seven. Um, and um, I sat down, plugged it into my television set, literally um, taught myself the program. Taught myself to, to literally took step by step. There was a little book that you know and you can key in programs, and then just wrote, copied what they what was in the book, and then would just edit it and learn how to make changes to it, and, and taught myself how to do that. You know, at a very young age, and then um, used that computer for a couple of years until I until I got my Commodore sixty four um, for for Christmas when I was um, in third grade. Uh, lots of um, ramp on that one. Yeah, and yeah. there was a lot a lot of fun with that one. Isn't <laughs> it? Um, yeah. That's really great. And then, uh, if I recall, too, you, you at some point you went to Epcot and kind of saw the world of the future. And how do you see that playing out now from what you saw back then? Well, it's, it's interesting because um, what I what I reflecting back on what how they depicted the future, one thing they always um, I guess missed on, and I guess this, this is sort of the nature of the you know, of sort of the spirit of Epcot was sort of like there's this great big beautiful tomorrow kind of kind of notion and I mean if you can dream it we can do it was sort of like the themes of, of, of that what they sort of missed out on was the the bad things that can happen <laughs> um, in technology and so what you often saw was um, people you know living in a world where just technology just worked all the time there was no there was no notion of technology breaking down or technology having um, security problems um, or, or hackers um, causing issues with um, with some with some world or, or an environment that was built and so I think a lot of what what, what you saw back then was is actually True life today, right? You in a lot of those exhibits and those those shows, right? Back in you know 1983, you saw things like um, voice recognition, you know, talking to computers with your voice, which was completely, you know, didn't even exist back back then. Um, there was video conferencing, and so even actually, if you think about it, many of the things that were depicted at more of a grander scale today actually fits in your in your pocket. Right. <laughs> um, access to the information highway and and all these things that they they talked about. Um, actually fit in your pocket today, which is you know goes even further beyond than I think what they what they had dreamed or expected back in the early '80s. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see that uh, there was always that uh, that thought of the future and where things are lying now and what people are looking for for the future. And, you know, as we look forward now, um, but when you kind of look back to those points of what what drew you into getting into cybersecurity and, and those types of that, that that this area as opposed to maybe all the other infinite areas of technology you can kind of get into. Yeah, I think, well, I think I would say that cybersecurity, um, I didn't choose cybersecurity, it sort of chose me. Um, back when I was in, in college, uh, my roommate and I, um, a guy by the name of Steve Woodruff, um, I believe he actually works at IBM today, I'm not actually quite sure, but he and I were roommates. And the, probably the first notion of, like, there's some real work to be done here 
was in the form of um, there was an attack that was highly highly popular um, in IRC that was called flash attacks. It was a, it was a terminal attack against um, users. And what you would actually do is you, you would it would exploit a problem in the in the talk daemon. Um, if people remember running mm-hmm. talk, you would type talk in someone's email address, and it would connect to that server, and then you'd be able to do a split screen chat, um, sort of like um, doing like a Skype chat today, um, but it was just text and it was split screen. Well, there was a it was a problem with that talk daemon that if you pass control characters um, along in the request message, it would completely scramble the um, the person's um, the person's terminal. And back then, you weren't using like a Windows-based system. Most people were just using terminal um, ter- terminals to get get into things. You dialed up, and if your if your if your if your session got scrambled, you had to typically hang up and then dial back in. And back then, sometimes you know, you know modem lines to get into these environments was actually a, a it was actually um, a highly prized um, thing because sometimes you have to wait hours while while you listen to a busy signal. So if you knock someone off. They may not come back, and so these attacks were pretty popular back then. You would run flash attacks on IRC, and you would kick people off their terminal session, and they might not come back for several hours. Well, that started hitting our our, our student population pretty bad. Um, back in it would have been the year 1994, I think. I think it's what it would have been. Um, we started seeing this. And so we sort of brainstormed an idea on how to defend against this. And so we actually ended up designing and writing a, um, a anti-flash talk daemon that basically would detect when this type of attack was happening and shield our own, our, our own students from this attack. And then pu- and wrote it up there, published it. I think it, it's floating around there someplace, um, probably. Um, and then would also actually put a little bit of intrusion detection in it. It would actually notify us when someone wrote, um, run that, ran that attack against our population and actually tell us where the source was. And so it was a sort of like defense tool, intrusion detection system, all baked into one um, that, um, that, was, that was out there. So that was my, really my first, I think, experience of like true, like, Modern, like sort of what we would consider information security today, sort of defender and, and, and sort of responder type role. Um, and then from there, just sort of the nation, notion of sort of running those systems for our, for our university. I went to Illinois State University and having access to that sort of taught me quite a bit about, you know, patching systems and changing passwords and doing things that are like the bare minimum basics that I learned early on and the reasons why you do it. Because if you don't, you're going to get compromised. And right. I, I, I experienced and saw a lot of that at an early age. When, when you were going to school for that, would, how was the program designed, uh, designed then as far as the computer science program? Was it still based on a lot of the mainframe technology at the time? That's what I found in the 90s. That yeah. It was, was a, lot, a lot of big push towards, well, you know, you need to go learn how to do COBOL and do mainframes. And there was less of an emphasis on what we would consider you know, modern technology as far as lands and the type of technology we all use now and have to defend. Yeah, I, I think I was actually lucky that at the time I was going to school, there was a hybrid approach. It was sort of like the students who were like a year or two older than me actually only got 100% of the mainframe stuff and in in sort of the large enterprise computing. And the group that I was in, we, we were asked to do both. So we, we, we had to do you know, the mainframe, the JCL, the COBOL, the PL1 on the mainframe. We had to learn all of that. Um, but then we also learned C, C++, um, even Pascal, um, and doing some and so in, doing, doing programming as well um, while, while we were getting our degree. Um, and then at the exact same time, uh, things like HTML and CGI scripts, you know, Perl and CGI sort of was just sort of coming about. Um, and, it, and conveniently, I also had friends that went to U of I 
around that time as well and got my first exposure to the World Wide Web um, through the through those guys. Um, used to go and hang out with them on the weekends, and we'd, we'd go and um, hang out actually at NCSA, um, which was sort of the birth of um, Mosa- you know, Mosaic, the first mm-hmm. web browsers. We'd go hang out there, and one of my friends actually handed to me on a floppy um, a beta version of Mosaic um, that ran on Windows, and I brought it back to my university, and I'm certain I was the first student at my university to actually ever run a web browser, um, and then installed it in some computer labs and, and started showing people how to use it, um, which was very exciting, which was sort of, that was like, this was this brand new world that I was experiencing, you know, sort of the World Wide Web, and started diving deeper into that, and actually, um, through work at the university, um, started doing a lot of web development and web application development, I guess before it was even called web applications, was doing web application development for, the, for my university while I was going to school. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you try to or find yourself more focused on security in the areas of, of that, well, I would say within security, a lot of the work that you've done with vulnerabilities and reversing malware, and, and what kind of drew you to that area as opposed to, again, all the plethora of different areas, even subsets of information security? Yeah, so that, that exposure... Probably started when I was in, probably like a junior or senior um, in college, um, mainly because once I started learning more and more how technology, like the modern internet technology started working um, and sort of the, the bare bones and the, and, the, and, the, and the components there, I started to understand how you can break them as well or try to get curiosity around how I can break them. And so the nice thing about you know, at least being in a university in the 90s, um, you can hack into anything you wanted on campus um, and you wouldn't get in trouble for it. <laughs> and so you literally, we would hack into various systems on campus and we would show the university um, how we did it. Essentially, we were doing free penet- penetration free testing. Test, yeah. And they would thank us. to be like, thanks for letting us know. Um, we'll fix that system. Um, and we would show our computer science department, you know, the flaws that we found in the system. Uh, we would show the, the, the key card system, you know, not the key card system, but the, the payment system that was used for, for students to buy their, their food in their cafeteria. Um, we, would, we would show flaws in that. And so that was really the, really the first foray to sort of the hybrid world of, you know, building systems and breaking systems, uh, started around then, um, and then uh, then when I when I I guess when I was moving into the workforce is when I started get started to actually get to choose what I wanted to do and choose my path. At that and what point. what was that path next as you enter the workforce yeah. and kind of take us up to today? Yeah, so the um, ba- it would have been it was 1997, and lots and lots of people were actually. Interviewing, you know, they were interviewing. It was technology was hot, right? This is right around the beginning of the dot com era, and um, but many of the folks that were interviewing, at least down at Illinois State University, were hiring people to help them with the Y two K problem. Um, and they were they were saying, well, hey, we, we want to hire a lot. You know, Cobol. You know, you right. know, JCL. We want to hire you. We'll pay you lots of money. Actually, they were for that, at that period of time. They were tossing out. You know, in nineteen ninety seven, they were offering um, quite a bit of money for folks to go and work on um, the Y2K problem. And um, I had m- multiple job offers in, in that category. Um, actually, before my, it was the fall of my senior year, um, I actually already had jo- had folks I was interviewing with that wanted to make offers, that were, some of them were making offers. And I didn't want to do any of that. I Actually, at that point in time, I didn't really want to just get stuck. And I, I just thought in my mind, it was like, this is a Y2K problem. What happens after Y2K? Like, I didn't want to get, get in this rut of doing three years of COBOL development. And so, um, all, all the, and they were sort of taken back by that. A lot of the folks I was interviewing with were like, what do you mean you don't want to do this? This is what the job is. You know, you're a, you're a student, you're graduating. Once you take anything that you can get, and I'm like, no. Uh, and the first company that actually asked me what I wanted to do was, was Anderson Consulting. Um, and that's um, Accenture today. And they actually, the first question they said is, said, hey, what do, you, what do you like? What do you want to do? 
you know, what gets you, I mean, what gets you excited in the, in the world of technology? And I, I told them all about it. And I, I ended up you know, went, you know, went for some campus on-campus interviews and ended up getting hired. And when I went through, after I went through all their training, they do six weeks, it was six weeks of 12 hours a day, kind of intense training, taught you how to give presentations, taught you how to, you know, you know, run meetings. It was all of that, not technology stuff, a little bit of programming, but it was mostly just business skills for six weeks. Um, when I sort of graduated from that and started the job, I um, was part of a, a network infrastructure team. Um, there was no secure, quote, security team at the time back then. It was called network infrastructure. And we ran um, essentially globally, set all the standards for all the routers, the switches, the firewalls, the VPN, the auth- remote authentication, all of that um, was, was under our, our direction. Um, and I got to dabble with a lot of new enterprise technology that I didn't even get to touch when I was in, in school and sort of take a lot of that the hacker mentality with me. Well, just uh, kind of an intersection there. How, how would you define a hacker? Um, so I, I actually, when people have asked, like, what, who am I, I would say I'm a hacker. Um, I think it's someone who has a great passion for technology um, or the world around you and a, a very, very high degree of curiosity. Um, and, and it's basically the two core pieces of that. If, you, if, you're, if you're very observant to the world around you and you have a lot of curiosity and you utilize your, your, those skills that you've built up or skills that you want to build up to try to understand how something works, then I, I'd say you sort of fall into that category. And even at an early age, I used to um, take apart my parents' televisions and, and, and other technology around the house and broke a lot of stuff. Say, so how much of that actually got put back together? Yeah, broke a, I broke a lot. Um, I, um, I used to play around with magnets as well. And magnets and technology you know, sometimes don't mix, but sometimes yeah. they actually make some for some interesting results. Um, it caused different problems with the screens and the speakers and stuff. And so, um, yeah, broke a lot of stuff. My parents weren't too thrilled when I was about seven, eight years old. Yeah, I went through a lot of the same. <laughs> so after Anderson, where did you kind of grow to from there? Yeah, so what happened at Anderson, uh, it, just interesting enough, when I, my first day, um, I got put into a cube, right? It's typical, you know, 90s office, you know, cubicles. Um, and right next to me was a guy by the name of um, Andy Boker. Um, and some people who are listening may know who he is. Um, he was one of the founders of Trustwave. And um, but he wasn't a founder of Trustway at the time. We just right. worked together. Um, and so, short. I was at Anderson for a couple of years, and Andy left, and he went to go work for a startup um, that was called Netrex, which was out of Southfield, Michigan, but they had an office, a small office in Chicago. And Netrex at the time was the first um, managed security service provider, managed firewall provider. Um, they were also one of the first um, companies that was doing, doing doing penetration testing and deployment of technology um, at the time. Um, medium-sized company at the time, but fast-growing, and at the at, and had major contracts with um, very large you know companies that you would know like um, like uh, Level Three, um, SBC, like literally all the firewalls that were that were deployed by those companies for all the business clients were actually run by Netrex and deployed by Netrex. So. I was like, I got a chance came like, hey, you could work for a security company. Wow. Jumped at it. Sold. <laughs> and basically, I remember my, one of my first engagements um, that I went on, I literally had, had never done consulting before. Even though I worked for Anderson Consulting, my role there was internal. We supported 42,000 employees around the world in like 160 offices or something. And so this was my first foray into consulting. And I remember, I think it was my second week at, at Netrex, was staffed on a project. Um, to deploy a firewall to a bank in Los Angeles. And I had never touched that technology before. They handed me the manual <laughs> and some plane tickets. And I literally flew to LA, um, 
sat down and installed this firewall um, for this bank. And this was a time when before fire, this was new firewalls were getting deployed for the very first time. Before I actually installed this firewall, they had a router with a class C and public IP addresses on all the computers that were in their environment. Nothing can go wrong there. Including <laughs> desktops, all their servers, everything, and no access control at all. Right. So this was the very first firewall that was in their environment, and it was a pretty simple configuration, as you can imagine. It was basically a deny-all inbound. The deny-all, yeah. Because <laughs> there, was, there was no reason for anything to come in um, into their environment. And so... Um, so that was my first foray into that, and then started picking up and started doing penetration testing um, while I was there. Um, and then it sort of accelerated pretty fast. I went from being a consultant to actually um, actually managing teams. And so I started managing the, consult- the, 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 penet- the pen testers in that environment. And then sh- about a year and a half or two years after I was there, we got bought. And we got bought by a company that many people probably know about called Internet Security Systems out of Atlanta. And so there is when um, things accelerated quite rapidly from like more of a global scale um, because I started getting involved with helping design and develop global standards for doing things, doing consulting activities. Uh, They stuck um, a bunch of us down in a room in Atlanta um, for a couple of days. It was um, um, Caleb Seema, if you're familiar with who he is. Um, I think he... I don't know what he's doing today, but he was the founder of Spy Dynamics and also um, Blue Box, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. It was myself, him, um, Mark um, Curfee, um, who's the founder of OWASP, um, who went on to found OWASP, um, Eric Pace Burkholz, and there was a couple other people. They stuck in a room, and they said, we need to actually develop a methodology for doing penetration testing. And so we took this blend of this this hacker mentality, this deep hacker mentality for just breaking stuff and just giving like a one-page report with some of the big four and some of the more um, more more management style of um, of doing reporting. We melded those together and came up with a methodology and a way of conveying reporting that, in, in essence, I think um, many organizations copied from back then um, because I took a lot of that style with me to other places and I know a lot of, all those folks who were there took that style to other places as well and when you when you see penetration test reports they look very similar to, to what we <laughs> developed um, back in um, it would have what year would that have been 2001 um, at um, or 2000 at internet security systems okay. yeah and then from uh, from internet security systems internet security systems I actually went and joined a startup um, Andy um, Boker and also Bob McCullen who was there at the time, also at Netrex, um, and a couple other folks um, left. And I went and joined them to go um, st- uh, basically start up a company that was called Exalt, um, which was just a large VAR, um, very large VAR, became the largest checkpoint reseller, um, mm-hmm. I believe, in the world, um, very, very quickly in about 18 months, and got bought by, um, by VeriSign. So you're probably familiar with Verisign. This is when yeah, Verisign. This is when Verisign actually did consulting. Um, okay. Verisign had a consulting arm, um, and they also had their PKI business and their domain business as well back then, um, with their with their ownership of, of network solutions, and running the root um, root DNS servers um, back then, um, which I believe they still may may run those today. Mm-hmm. Um, but worked there for for a number of years and ran the consulting practice um, for them. And so I had a large number of people. We were doing consulting all over the world. Um, doing penetration testing, doing network architecture work, doing security assessments, and also doing deployment of um, third-party products. And then from there, was that when, after that, moving into the, the TrustWave world? Yeah. So um, interesting story of how, how this came about. Um, basically, um, 
some folks from 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 Verisign, actually specifically Andy Boker and Bob McCullen, they left um, after about a year and a half or so. Um, they left Verisign in November of 2002. Is sort of the time frame. Um, I was still at Verisign. Um, there was um, some issues going on um, around um, some performance of the company of Verisign um, at the time back in back in 2002, and there were lots of layoffs going on. And um, unfortunately, I was in a position where I, I, I managed lots and pe- lots of people, um, and I had to lay off lots of people um, during that time period. It was about three quarters in a row. I think it was like eight people the first quarter, ten people the second, and when the last one came around. Um, the process that was being utilized to, to, to lay off people um, was very, very well thought out and very automated. Um, and because I ran this group, um, I was given a spreadsheet with everybody's name in it, and you had to put an X next to the people that were going to get laid off. Um, I was a little bit t- sort of tired of this sort of like downward spiral of the business. Mm-hmm. And so I put, my, I put an X next to my name um, and sent it in. And sure enough, I got laid off. Um, which basically allowed me to go um, work for Andy and Bob. Um, so, you, so you fired yourself. I fired myself. Right, yes, okay. um, um, I fired myself, which um, made the non-compete null and void, um, and basically went um, walked down the street to to join um, a company at the time, which was called Amberon. Um, that's the first. That's the original name first of, iteration. Of, of of Trustwave. Um, joined that team. Um, I was the very first technical hire that they made, um, and I was also the very first um, outside salesperson. You know, it was a little bit of a of a, of a of a experimentation. The model was that was originally designed for for Amberon was that we were security advisors, um, and the um, the salespeople they they did not want to hire traditional salespeople because in technology sometimes salespeople get a little bit of a negative connotation, and so they wanted folks who had um, deep technical backgrounds and some skills that could also have conversations with executives and um, and lead meetings and scope and and, and try to figure out and then also do, also deliver engagements. And so I got brought on board to do that and, um, and basically help build the business um, from um, where it was um, back then, which was very, very small, I mean, five, six employees, to after about 11 years had um, about 1,300, 1,400 people um, that were at that, at that company globally. Um, so in between there, I did a lot, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened sure. um, in a time period, you know, starting up Spider Labs, um, helping launch that, uh, we're actually launching that Doing all the branding, all the, all the all the backstory that was created around Spider Labs to draw some attention um, to us, and then motivating the building and motivating the team um, do, to do some great things. Yeah, why did you pick the name Spider Labs? So it was originally an acronym, um, and so I, I I actually like to draw a lot, and so um, so I basically I remember sitting down with a piece of paper and drawing and, and visually seeing. I wanted I was I was launching something. You know, I wanted to launch something within the company. I got some some. Um, I convinced Andy and Andy and Bob to let me pull um, some of the deep technical folks that were at Ambron at the time. Um, actually, right around the time of the name change, when the merger happened between Ambron and Trustwave, I convinced them to allow me to pull some of the deep technical folks away from the normal consulting practice. Um, the normal consulting practice was a hybrid of things. We sometimes deploy products, sometimes we do security assessments, sometimes we do pen tests, sometimes we do IR. It was like pretty you get you get really watered down from like a talent perspective. No one's able to focus. And so I found a couple of folks that I thought were like just sort of fit the mold of what I was looking for to build this new team and and pull them away. And we sort of sat in the corner of an office and we didn't have a name at the time. And so I sat down and thought maybe an acronym would be kind of cool. And I said, well, you know, we, um, we, we're going to do pen testing, so that's sort of simulating. 
an attack. Um, we are going to do um, help them, you know, you know, them prepare for an attack and do some IR, you know, incident response readiness and all that. So that's prepare, um, and then um, and then we're also going to help them defend against things. And at the time, actually, Spider Labs um, also ran um, Trustwave's managed security services group. Um, that that group actually came under me as well, right around the time we were giving names. Um, so it was sort of like a really quick progression. I sort of pulled three people that were technical, and they said, okay, well, since you're taking all the technical folks, why don't you take the MSSP group, which at the time had also three people. It was not very large. Um, and so um, I got so that was the defend. And then we also did IR work, so that was the response. So it became SPDR. Um, and uh, essentially um, that um, name sounded great when I said spider. I said, oh, how about labs? You know, spider labs sounded really cool, but SPDR labs on paper just didn't look good. It just looked awkward. And so I thought about it. I said, well, I'm just going to change the name to spider labs, S-P-I-D-E-R, and then sort of all one word, the capital L, L-A-B-S, um, and then worked on, and, and sketched out sort of a design and then had a graphics person that worked at Trustwave that sort of did the first iteration of the logo for us, and then we then sort of ran, started running from there. Very cool. And then from going from there, I, I know you went on to also work with Rapid7, which is more of a, I would say, was it more of a product company? Yeah, so it was at the time. So when I joined, they always had some professional services, and but it was, the, the focus of the company was, was very, um, very vertical from like a, I would say from a security standpoint, they have um, at the time they had Nexpos, which people are probably familiar with from a vulnerability management platform. They also had Metasploit, Metasploit Pro, sort of in the same category, right? Vulnerability scanning, exploits, you know, sort of falls in the same sort of vertical there. And they also did penetration testing. And then they had some. Then they had support and services that were aligned to those products. They also had a had a product at the time that was called User Insight. Um, when I when I joined them, it was geared very very narrow, geared on detecting. Um, compromises when it has to do with user credentials. And um, and that was basically, that was it. That was really what they had. And so I joined them to do a couple of things. Um, one, to start up a, a services group that was called um, Strategic Services. And that was advisory work. It was completely different, you know, different world for them, right? So they mm -hmm. had, most of their customers were uh, security admins, security managers, uh, maybe some, maybe VPs of security and things like that. That was like their customer base that ran teams of security people. Very, very, a little bit into the CISO realm, um, but very limited when it came to like anything else within the business that, of their customers. And so the strategic services were specifically ramped up to give um, Rapid7 the ability to, um, to consult and advise at a higher level and get higher up within the organization. You know, it, it always, from a business standpoint, if you're, if you're, calling every day and, and dialing into the network admins because those are the ones who are going to buy your, your, your software, you're going to be pretty limited in like, what you can do with that business. But when you get to the executive level and you're selling you know, to, the, to the CFO or the general counsel or the, even the CEO in many, many cases, when you're selling at that level, um, the ability for you to, to go more broad and do more strategic things with those customers um, greatly improves. And so that was the big strategy there. So I went and, and brought in some really outstanding folks um, to help um, build that business, and we we did some great things. We we built up a really good business in, in that in that area. And about six months after I launched that business, I also got the nod to launch an instant response business as well. Um, so I went and recruited some folks um, from the industry um, that had a lot of experience to help launch IR business. So just doing plain instant response, doing um, doing retainer type work, and then um, sort of going back to that user insight platform. 
the idea that I had um, when I first saw that platform, when I first saw that demonstration, was that yeah, this is an interesting sort of sort of point solution, but we can actually make this much broader, um, and then actually flip it into something that was an, like an instant response workflow, instant response tool that can be then be used by instant response teams, but also which we launched um, right about three months before I left, um, that we worked on for about a year, um, was an instant response managed services business in a more modern one, in a more modern way, because it used behavior um, analytics, it used machine learning, it used all sorts of things in order to identify and detect um, when there was actually some some attacks that were happening in a, in a, in a customer's environment, mm-hmm. which which made made the made, made this made the environment much more scalable right you don't have to hire 150 sock analysts to stare at screens when you actually have you know the technology that's going to do that work for you do you see more of that tra- i guess trending within the industry where you can and just because there's so much data to go through where you need to have more of that type of automation you know more machine learning more oh, thought yes certainly certainly the the analytics aspect in security is 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 a key key component you know, even just in like the vulnerability management world, right? If you just think of that, if you have a large environment, or even any any sort of environment, you have an environment that has 500 systems, even, and you're doing vulnerability scanning. There's a lot of results that are going to come from those scans, and being able to apply some analytics to those results to help you prioritize. Because you can print, I can print out, I can run a vulnerability scan of your environment, and then print you out a report that's 500 pages long. Um, and then you hand it to the folks that need to make to make changes to that. It paralyzes them. And so being able to do uh, basically do analytics along that data set and pull in external things you know are these exploits available in the wild um, you know is is this is, is this something that's um, that's being actively attacked in the wild being able to pull that information in um, and use that to prioritize um, is key and then also us aligning things like the business priorities to that analytics is this a core component is this vulnerability in a core system something that's a core part of the business or is it some brochureware site someplace so if you if all, all things are not equal in the vulnerability management world and if you actually prioritize that you actually can um, make it make a big difference and reduce the risk of the organization when you have a massive list of 100,000 vulnerabilities that you're trying to sift through you often find companies have no idea where to go and yeah, they, they it's, end it's, up spending time on things that really don't matter yeah there's just too much to do in too short period of time yeah yeah so from, kind of moving from the consultative world now into where you are now, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now because you, you're carrying a, a C title. So now it seems like you're the person you used to sell to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I am, I'm now the um, chief information security officer um, here at Uptake. And um, I was brought on to, to build a, um, a, a, a world-class, um, world-class or even I would say, you know, it's often said as a badass um, security program here at Uptake. Um, and so basically the, the, the idea that I have is to take all the experiences that I've had um, for the last 20 years and seeing hundreds of organizations. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of security programs, whether it's from the side of when I was doing consulting, doing security assessments, or it was the role of instant response when I would actually be the person that would deliver the bad news um, to the CEO or the general counsel of actually what happened. Um, I would see lots and lots of um, issues, systemic issues that would happen within organizations that would not get fixed. Um, or not even they, they didn't even know those problems were there. And so taking that experience and being able to apply that and build a program um, in the right way um, here at Uptake has has been a, a an awesome experience so far, and I've only been here for for nine months. Sure, yeah. And kind of looking back at the last twenty years, who've been some of the uh, mentors that you've had in the field? 
Yeah, be interesting. That's a very interesting question. I would say my biggest, um, my biggest mentor, um, you know, that really would be would be Andy Boker. Um, he was the biggest. I've worked literally with him for, um, I think, like seventeen years um, in some capacity. I didn't always report to him. Um, we worked at similar same companies in, in many cases. Sometimes I reported to you know the CEO of the company. Sometimes I reported to him. And I, I think he was a, he was a huge influence um, in in my career and sort of. You know, he's always given me great advice um, and things. And then I think there's also folks that I would I would call um, you know sort of peers in the industry, um, even 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 some folks that I would say um, that that were not necessarily that, that that I brought on that actually worked for me um, that I would say would would be great influences um, in sort of you know helping me see things in a different way. I think that's always important. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who has more experience than you. They have to be people who actually ask interesting questions and sort of. You know, drive me in different directions. I would say, um, you know, a lot of the lot, lot of the folks I had that I recruited and that brought on at Spider Labs were a huge influence. Um, folks like um, Rob Havelt, um, if you know who he is, um, um, Charles Henderson, Luis Eduardo Dos Santos, Colin Shepard, Chris Pogue, like that whole team was um, was was really key um, for, for for like and really shaped my career. Um, they they all had really really deep areas of expertise and would challenge. And they, they would challenge, and we would we would innovate and come up with new ideas. And so they were a huge influence in, in sort of where, where, the way I think about things today. What you know, kind of thinking along of that, what what is the best career advice you've ever received, and who gave it to you? Oh, I don't even know who who gave. I think the best career advice that I ever I ever had was, um, never pass up opportunities, is the best career advice. I, I often run to lots of folks, especially in our industry, and especially when I've been recruiting, even trying to recruit folks. Um, and this is sort of sounds strange now. You know, you know, I, I was I, I wouldn't want to see you know, it, it really depends. Um, but the the big piece there that I've run across is that I've had my phone ring. Um, you know, in, in the security industry, everybody knows that there are. Um, there are lots of opportunities for people. You know, there's lots of times people are going to get recruiters are going to call them. They're going to ask them for, for a, you know, hey, are you interested in these types of jobs? Um, and what I what I would recommend for folks, if even if you've you're in a job and you feel like you've been there for like a year or two years, um, and someone picks up the phone and calls you and says, hey, would you like to chat about you know what we have going on here? Um, it's always worth the conversation. What I would recommend. Um, it's all, it's re- literally always worth the conversation. Um, now, you know, you know, you can be a hundred percent, a thousand percent happy in your job, but you never know what's going to happen. Um, you never know what opportunity is going to come around the corner. And actually, actually how I ended up here at Uptake, um, I was completely happy, completely content, um, with my role running global services at Rapid7 and, you know, Uptake gave me a call. And said we have we have an opportunity here. We're trying to um, we're we're building a, we want to build a world class security program. And um, we've been it's been recommended we give you a call. And they're here in Chicago. Why not? Why not come down to the offices and chat with them? And then you know after meeting with Brad Keywell um, and the rest of the executive team, I was sold. And this was and joined on. And, and kind of one of the other things too that I've I've noted about you is certainly is you know you've. Presented at South by Southwest, DEFCON, Black Hat, RSA. So you do a lot of speaking and, and give back to the community, uh, security community, certainly by presenting and becoming a, a public speaker. What what point or what kind of drove you to do that as opposed to maybe writing books or other, other ways to contribute? Yeah. What I would say, well, early on, I was deathly afraid of public speaking. 
I mean, like, I, I could not speak in front of people, you know, to save my life. Like, even early on in my, even early, like when I first graduated college, when I, my first job, if you said you had to do a presentation in front of 50 people, it would be like, I don't know, I'd rather, like, run my car into a brick wall. Like, it was like that. Like, I was, I was more, less afraid of, like, dying than getting in front of people, which I think most people have that issue. Um, um, what happened, it was sort of like trial by fire. What, I, mean, what, I ended up getting into a situation where it was, like, literally last minute, um, and that I was at a, I was at a conference, um, and a colleague, and this is back when I was at Verisign, a person that was supposed to give a presentation on something that I knew, I knew all of, I, I knew the content because we had worked on it together, um, fell ill. Um, and basically was like, yeah, he, he's, you know, sick in his room or everything. Someone has to do this presentation and literally had to get up in front of like 150 people and talk about something we were working on at, at Verisign. And from there I was like, you know what? You know, it was literally like I had five-minute notice, like, hey, you got to go up. And I was like, you know what? This wasn't so bad. Like, it wasn't this, like, horrible experience that I, that I thought it was going to be. And then afterwards, lots of people came up and were like, hey, you know, thanks for the presentation. It was very informative. I learned a great deal. And I'm like, wow, people actually learned from something I just sort of, like, pulled out of, you know, pulled out of thin air, right? So it was sort of an interesting experience. And, um, and then from there, I just sort of lost my fear of it. It was sort of like you just push past that threshold, and I lost my fear and f- started to f- identify the sort of the opportunities that were, were, were that were afforded by getting up in front of people and actually talking about and sharing your ideas. You know, the especially when I was growing Spider Labs, the business opportunities that came about because of that were, were like immeasurable. You know, I would go and I would speak not at security conferences all the time. I would go to speak at industry conferences. So I would go to speak at this conference for payment application developers, or I'd go to this conference for, for financial institutions, and I would speak about security. And after I got done speaking for 45 or 50 minutes, 25, 30 people would walk up and hand me business cards and say, hey, we're looking for someone to do this kind of work. Um, we're looking that we want to hire your firm. And so literally, you know, I would, I would prepare and give a 45-minute presentation and a half million dollars or sometimes a million dollars worth of business would, would actually come our way um, because of those presentations. And so I, I, that was the business side that I started learning because my job was to grow this business. And so I would put myself out there as much as I can in places uh, essentially to help grow that business. Yeah, and I think that's that's a critical act. Well, part of the reason why I started the podcast too is you know trying to find different ways to kind of share ideas, get information out there. You know, kind of certainly build a brand uh, among your peers. But um, you know, when it comes to information sharing, I think as a do you think as a community, information security professionals do enough of it, or is there more that can be done? Um, in pockets. Right, so like a like a, probably the best example of of information sharing or intelligence sharing would be like the FSISAC, sort of like the financial services um, ISAC. Um, they're like I mean that's like sort of if you're if you're going to build an ISAC in any other industry, look to them to model. I mean they have it's a well well vetted community. Um, they are well well tight knit community, and there's a lot of information sharing going on there. Now in the open world, I think. There's there's obviously the vulnerability disclosure paths. There's there's all sorts of things that are out there. Um, it gets pretty limited beyond that. It co- becomes more reactive. I think you know are are people sharing enough information now? There are some there's some groups that I'm part of, and there's some vetted groups um, that many people are part of that aren't. You know we don't talk about them publicly that we get intelligence from. Um, and so I think and that's again in pockets. Now is it sort of are, is there sort of this worldwide sort of community that people share lots of great information? Um, no, that doesn't exist. Um, now, probably the only thing that really truly exists would be like at conferences, 
Um, those are those are open forums. So I mean, I love speaking at DEF CON. You know, that's, I've, I've presented there a number of times. Um, I also um, run you know, the Chicago conference here, ThoughtCon. Um, and I've run that for for this is going to be your eighth year coming up. Um, and I I've only spoke I've only presented there once actually. Um, oh, that's funny. And, and that was because of someone no showing. And so I got up and gave an impromptu talk. Um, but um, but that's a, another way of giving back to the community of being able to host that um, for the community and, and bring you know 1,200 people from around the world together and about you know 40 50 speakers that that show up um, to give talks. And explain the name a little bit. Yeah, so um, you know, here's the thing. You don't want to search on Urban Dictionary for the word thought. I'll just put it out there. Yeah. I'm sure all your listeners are probably going to do that. Um, that actually, that, that word and, and that name came well after, or that, for, that, that definition came well after I, I started the conference. And so ThoughtCon itself was a, a play, I guess another play on um, when I was creating the word, you know, the title Spider Labs, right? So you have um, SPDR labs didn't look good, right? And so the, the, the notion of the word ThoughtCon ha- has two meanings. One, it's about thought, right? So it's like thinking, thought, and it's sort of that um, sort of you know curiosity is where that where that ties into. But it also ties into the two three one two as well. So the the first two letters are from the word three with th. The o is one, and the t is two. And so there's two basically two intersections of definitions that play um, into into the title ThoughtCon. You and you've you've marketed or at least founded it as a nonprofit and non-commercial yeah. conference. Why yeah. why to go that route as opposed to trying to do another another commercial conference? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another vendor show. Um, what I wanted to create was a place where there would never be the instance, there would never be the the, the reason for um, for us to pull a talk um, from the conference. We we don't record the talks. Um, there's no recording of any kind um, at the conference. Um, and it's been that way. It's actually hasn't been that way from the start. Um, we 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 learned um, that there's a reason why we don't record talks. Um, so um, we stopped recording video after ThoughtCon one, and then we we stopped recording audio after ThoughtCon two. And so there's no recordings at all. Um, and um, I also wanted to create a place where it was 100% community supported. So the cost of the conference, everything that goes into everything anybody experiences at the conference itself. The swag, the badges, the programs, the, the event space, the food at the conference, the, the, the AV, everything that goes into making that event is 100% supported by the community. All the people who work there volunteer their time. All the people who attend actually fund the conference itself. Now, we do take sponsors for two categories of things. One is for the after party. Um, and so we'll get 20 sponsors to put in, you know, you know, a couple, you know, a couple thousand dollars for that party. So we have a really nice after party. But that's all. That's all that money goes towards. We take all of that money that they put in and and throw a really, really nice party for the attendees. Lots and lots of fun, um, well, which is great for the sponsors because they actually get tables. They can talk. They get. You know, it's, it's it's great for the sponsors as well. But it separates that. Mm-hmm. It separates the um, um, the conference from the sponsors. We also take sponsors for education tickets, so education sponsorship. Um, when you have a self-supported conference that's not, that does not turn a profit at all, the, um, the ability for us to sell things like student tickets becomes very difficult. Um, you know, literally, the student tickets that are for sale are for, sold at about 50 to 60% below our cost per each attendee. And so in order to make those student tickets affordable and, and be able to allow students to attend, we need to have some support for that. And so we bring in some sponsors that basically fund the difference between the, between what we charge the student tickets and what our cost is, and, 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 it, and it, they do that for us. 
Um, but other than that, we actually have had in the past, I'm not going to say who it is, but we had a vendor try to ask us to pull a talk. Um, and they um, and they said, well, if you, if you don't pull a talk, we're pulling our sponsorship. Um, and I said, okay. And I wired the money back to them um, that same day. Um, and we went on from there. And so we, we want to have a, an event where there is no, there's no, there's no influence. People can say whatever they want. They can talk about whatever topic they want. In, in, we, we select the talks, right? Um, but when they get on stage, the stage is theirs. Um, and it's, it's, it's their experience and it's the attendees' experience with no outside influence. And in organizing a conference like this, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced and kind of how have you overcome them? So the, the biggest challenge, I would say, is, is cost, right? You know, without having to create astronomical prices and trying to keep the conference very, very low cost. Um, that has caught, that has, it actually has has forced me to become very, you know, I guess, creative in the way that we, we, we do deals with the venues that we actually um, have our conference at. Um, we From the early, early days, the first, very first conference that I threw, um, which only had about 125 people at it, um, I actually negotiated with the venue that they wouldn't charge us for the venue at all. We actually got the venue for free. It was Joe's Bar on, on Weed Street here in Chicago, which is a massive sports bar where they have country concerts. We actually got the entire venue for free um, if we were able to meet their food and beverage minimum, um, um, which was a bit of a challenge and a bit of a risk that I took. Um, but ThoughtCon has always been a it, – it's, it's, it, it's definitely not a vendor con. It's definitely not RSA. It's, it's more of a very laid-back sort of um, very um, – um, um, do whatever you want on a cup of conference. And so when I learned that the, that the food and beverage minimum was going to be in place, um, there was a challenge now. You don't challenge hackers, right? So um, the challenge was we had to meet that food and beverage minimum, which I think was about $15,000. And with 125 people, you, you could probably do the math. Um, it could be a little bit difficult to do. Um, but um, they said, hey, we're going to have the conference. You're going to have the conference there from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, we're going to serve lunch, you know, have lunch available for people to buy at noon. And we're going to open the bar at, 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 I think, at 1230 or something like that. And I said, no. I said, um, start serving food at, at 8 a.m. and start and open the bar at 8 a.m. And that basically allowed us to exceed our food and beverage minimum. And they were, they were happy to have us back the next year um, with zero charge for the entire venue. Um, and so we had to be. So when we outgrew that venue, that became another challenge for me because I was building this whole conference on free venues. And, um, and we don't have a free venue now. Um, but the food and beverage consumption at the conference um, plays a plays a big role, um, and so we we ensure that there are there's ample bars at the conference. There's ample places for people to get buy food, and they have really really good food at our events, so that people don't venture outside the conference and go you know go to run over to a fast food restaurant and buy a you know six dollar burger and fries. Mm-hmm. They go and they buy a you know seven dollar. Um, you know, gourmet burger, right? So like pub style burger with truffle fries and things like that. And so we, we have some really good food that people enjoy. Yeah. And along the kind of food and beverage of that, I know there's the uh, Hacker Brew contest. Yes. So what, what exactly is that? Yeah. So that actually um, is a BJCP sanctioned. Um, so like the, the, the homebrew comp- like the homebrew competitions that happen globally, it actually is a BJCP sanctioned homebrew competition that we hold at the conference. Um, and we've been doing that, I think, since ThoughtCon 3? Maybe ThoughtCon 4. I think it was 3 when we started that. We have judges um, that come in, 
um, that are uh, we, one of the guys um, that runs it is his handle is Brew Ninja. Um, he runs the whole thing, um, and we have people. We end up having about twenty five, I think, maybe up towards maybe I think last year was like thirty contestants, um, participants, and they actually bring bottles of their homebrew, and we have judges. Over the course of you know a day or so, they're actually tasting and judging and giving them score sheets and everything, um, and we have um, we have prizes for them. Um, probably the best prize, and sorry, probably the best story out of this um, that came out of this is there was a, a guy named Ryan Merritt um, who was actually a reverse engineer and a researcher at um, um, at Spider Labs. Um, he submitted a beer. He's always been into home brewing. He's brewed, he used to bring in his brew um, to, to to Spider Labs, like incredible beers. Um, he competed in the competition, and one of the sponsors of the competition was a brand new startup, a brewery um, called Cahoots Brewing. Um, and their prize, they wanted to donate a prize. Their prize for someone, the person who won the brewing competition, was a kegerator that was branded Cahoots, um, and a, a, and a and a guest brewer experience in their new brewery. They were they were going to brew his recipe, one of his recipes at their brewery. Um, he's now their head brewer. No kidding. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. There's a little bit. I, I I've seen it in in my own career, my own kind of taste for things. But there's this uh, weird crossover with hackers and security folks when it comes to uh, food and beverage. There's almost something like reverse engineering food and yeah. drinks. There's a, there's a big part of that. And I know you've it, with even with the beer, you've kind of described yourself as a bit of a uh, a beer geek. Yeah, and yeah. I think if there was a, one point I was following your tweets, there was was it like a beer, a different beer a day? Yes, 2012. Yeah. Um, that was that was my best and, and worst idea actually. Um, um, 2012, I I set a goal that I was going to drink a different beer, like a unique beer, every single day for 366 days because that year was a, a leap year. year. Okay. Um, and I used to go to I, used, I would go over to Benny's. And literally buy single bottles and load up an entire shopping cart and bring it home and have it in my fridge and it was it was fine for, for that when I was home, but I also traveled quite a bit, um, and I would literally go places and it would get really really tight like because I would go to countries where like obscure places where they didn't have that big of a variety of beer available to you, um, and I would almost run out of choices uh, when I was in the in the place in these places. Um, the place that I consumed every single local type of beer. Um, because I went so many times in 2012 was Columbia, um, where the last time I went, and it was like November, I think, of 2012, I actually had to bring my own beer with me (laughs) Um, because I knew that there was no more choices in that country um, that I could actually try. So I actually brought my own beer with me and actually was able to finish out and and round it out that whole year um, and and drank. But I also um, was very dedicated to this and continued to drink a beer a day when I um, had... Um, had a very bad upper respiratory infection, which isn't the best Smart idea. Move, yeah. <laughs> um, I also had food poisoning and continued to drink um, a, a beer that day. Um, so I was I was completely committed to finishing this thing out. And it's sort of how I am. What was your favorite beer out of uh, this is, experiment? So, so my my favorite beers out of those um, McKellar beers are outstanding. If you're familiar with those, Three Floyds are outstanding. I really enjoy those. Probably the most memorable, which I don't know if it can, would be considered. Um, probably the best beer of all that there is a um there's a beer called a creme brulee stout that's that's produced by southern tier which i think is out of new york i think it's out of new york um i don't know why but that one sort of like stuck uh, as as a really really enjoyable beer it it was it was outstanding yeah very cool and with um 
let's kind of segue into some of the other things that you give back. I know you you, you were founded uh, I Am the Cavalry. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that is and what yeah. What was the impetus of that? Yeah, so um, so this whole thing started with a conversation that Josh Corman and I were having. Um, that 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 same year that um, I believe it's the same year that we launched the, that the cavalry came cavalry came about. Um, Josh was a keynote at, at ThoughtCon, and so leading up to to his keynote, he and I had several conversations about what he was going to speak about, um, things that were happening in the industry, and it sort of came about that we decided. Hey, somebody should do something about what we're seeing. And the, things that we were, the, this, the thing that we were seeing was that technology was advancing faster than our ability, so our sort of like you know, sort of mankind's uh, uh, ability to, um, to secure it. And at the same time, technology was, was embarking very rapidly into areas that, were, that could impact human life and public safety. And so it was the intersection of both of those that really sort of sparked um, an interest in both of us. And the other piece that sort of weighed into that as well, um, I saw a lot of problems in the industry where vendors were, were, were trying to go after researchers for finding flaws in their products. And so if you think about sort of that world, you have this problem, this, real, this, this core problem of technology going faster than we can secure it. It intersecting very rapidly with human lives, with human life, um, and public safety, and now you have a community of people who want to help, right? They they want to help. They want to find problems. They want to report. They want they want to make things better. But the vendors, the people who manufacture technology, don't want to hear from them, and when they hear from them, they try to sue them. They try to they ca- they call federal prosecutors to try to to prosecute them. They they cause all these problems in in this world, and so the big fear that I w- I had sort of going into this was that um, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to live in a world where it's, it's illegal to find flaws in systems, except for the people who actually don't want to follow the law. Um, and so we ended up you know, getting, getting together, putting together a, a, a CFP, a call for papers entry for DEF CON. And basically the whole notion was we're, the cavalry isn't coming, right? Um, no one's going to come save us from this problem. And so we need to be the adults in the room, um, the people who have been in the industry for 15, 10, 15, 20 years, and stand up and actually encourage the hacking community to research things that matter. And at the same time, use the folks who we have in, who can influence and have connections to these vendors, have connections to lawmakers, have connections to places like the FTC and the FDA, and use our connections to try to improve the world that, that, that we live in. And so we gave this presentation. Ironically, we, we got accepted to speak at, at, at DEF CON, and we were like, this is awesome. We're going to be able to get in front of you know, 2,000, 3,000 people and talk about this. And then we got slated, and, we, and Nikita had emailed us the schedule, um, and, um, and we, we took a look at it, and we're like, oh, crap. We are, we're 10 a.m. on Sunday. <laughs> 10 a.m. on Sunday at DEF CON is, is, is not the, historically not the slot you want. Um, it's historically not the slot you want because people are – Saturday night is a very big night of, of, of interesting activities that go on. And so um, we, we assumed that there was going to be like 50 or 100 people um, at this event, um, at, this, at, our, at our session. Um, it turned out not to be the case. Um, it was standing room only. Um, at the at the in the room, so I don't know, roughly probably three thousand people were probably in there. They gave us track one, which is the largest track, um, and about three thousand people, twenty five hundred, three thousand people in the room. 
including people from media. Um, and when we got off the stage and we presented on sort of our argument for actually doing something like this, um, we had a good couple hundred people that followed us off stage um, and wanted to chat. Um, and they were people who worked for um, aviation companies. They were work people who worked for the federal government. Um, they, were work they were people who were researchers. They were people from all, all the, the entire community of people that we wanted to bring together. Um, they handed us business cards. Now, we didn't start a business from this. I think in hindsight, we probably could <laughs> could have. Um, we actually um, set up a Twitter account and a mailing, mailing list and actually invited people to join us. Um, and from there, um, there's been a lot of work that's gone on. Now, I, I, I don't have a lot of time to participate in all the things um, today. Um, I'm still um, involved you know, from, from status calls to learn about some things from time to time. I'm still on the mailing list. I'm still on, I still have access to run the Twitter account and things like that. Um, but I, um, but I've, I have, have guided and watched some really great things that have come out of that movement. Um, things like the five-star autom five automotive cyber safety framework. Um, that we produced, um, and, and I was involved in, in helping do rounds of edits um, that we released as an open letter to auto manufacturers, um, which sparked some changes. Right? You, you, you know, we've we've seen um, we've seen Tesla, um, um, you know, at least at least at least um, publicly announce some of the things that we talked about in that letter in that framework. We saw GM um, just a couple of months after we we released that appoint their first cyber czar. Um, in charge of cyber cyber safety, essentially for their for their automobiles and for their self-driving cars, and so we saw a lot of activity there. Um, and then moving past that, we also released sort of similar to the five-star automotive cyber safety. The way the the way the way the framework is is designed, um, it's reusable, um, and a version of it was reused for the Hippocratic Oath um, for connected medical devices. Um, which um, members of the cavalry collaborated very very closely um, with the FDA. Um, in, 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 in communication and in collaboration and things on. So, um, so there's been some really, really amazing things that have come out of that, um, that DEF CON talk that, that Josh and I gave uh, a number of years ago. Yeah, and, and I know you've spoke about kind of in, in some of the other presentations you've given over the years about the Internet of Things and how we are kind of in this rapid adoption yeah. of bringing in all these different Internet-connected devices um, and then recently there was, and I think you've kind of, I would say, warned was a, was a fair way yeah. <laughs> to describing that this would happen. Uh, does it suck to be right now after this recent <laughs> massive yeah. denial of service attack? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like some of the more like future looking talks that I gave talked about sort of the, the, the my vision for like security implications that were coming. Um, and that, that, that attack did not surprise me one bit. I mean, you know, I've, I've, been involved in IoT research um, and looking at things. I led, um, I, in, in basically led and advised people to basically dig deep into like consumer grade IoT. And every single time I did, and every single time I got involved in, the, in that research, it, it's been sort of abysmal um, from a security standpoint. Yeah. Um, whether it was Mark Stanislav when I was at, at Rapid Seven, Mark Stanislav went out and um, and bought ten different baby monitors on Amazon. And found horrible results from mm -hmm. a security standpoint. Um, all brand name companies uh, that produce these, um, and um, or it was you know some of the other research that we did on um, home automation and, and, and locks that were used and, and other tools and things. So that was not surprising at all um, that that would that would exist. Um, and, and in fact, it, you know the root cause of a lot of that is just plain the per people didn't change their passwords on on their cameras and some other technology. That's not surprising at all either. But that being said, I believe there is a level of responsibility on the manufacturers of those devices um, 
to, to do some of the bare, bare minimum, right? When someone gets a new device, force them to change the password. You know, admin, username admin, password admin, not a good choice for something that's going to be listening on the internet. You know, force them to change their password. Have the ability to supply secure updates to those devices when there's vulnerabilities that are discovered on those devices. Have a program to ingest and take in vulnerability reports and triage those and fix those problems in a timely manner um, and, and really think through. Um, and then the other piece is don't use vulnerable components in the technology that you ship. You know, there's a lot of, lot of technology. You can walk into a consumer electronics store and buy a bunch of IoT devices, and there's probably near, a near 100% chance that at least one of those devices, when you take it out of the box, has a security vulnerability in it. Now, it may update itself, right? You know, if, it, if, it's, if, it's, a, if it's, a, it's a vendor doing the right thing, it may update itself, you know, minute one when you turn it on. But if it doesn't, that manufacturer is shipping a device with a security vulnerability that a consumer has no ability to defend against um, day one when they plug it in. They think they're buying a baby monitor. They think they're buying a, you know, a home thermostat, but it ships out of the box with, with problems. And there's, there's reasons why, right? You, you, don't, you don't pop out of a box one day and say, I'm going to build this IoT device. I'm going to use the latest and greatest technology with all the security f patches on it, um, all, the, all, the, the, all the libraries you pull in to build that platform. is not gonna be, it, it may be 100% secure today, but you don't release it tomorrow. You release it nine months or a year from now. And so that, the big problem that happens is the manufacturers spin up these efforts to, con to pop out consumer-grade devices. They put nice packaging, nice instructions. It's user-friendly. But under the hood, it's, it, it's, it's a vulnerability nightmare in, in many cases. Yeah, and uh, Senator Mark Warner is calling for greater cybersecurity regulation. President Obama commented on the situation. Do you think the government has or should get involved at this point, or is there anything they can do from yeah, a regulation? I think, I think the biggest, I think, when I think of, you know, the government doing anything with, with what's going on in the IoT world, um, you know, there already is the FTC. So the Federal Trade Commission themselves already has the ability to, um, to, to basically you know, go after companies who are, who are who are leaving consumers exposed, and they have in the past. There's a there's a there's a documented case against TrendNet, which is a manufacturer of cameras. Um, actually, folks that that worked for me discovered vulnerabilities in in these TrendNet cameras and did a disclosure on it. Um, and at the time, they just were non-responsive um, to to the to the issues that were going on. So we we published the the advisory out there. Um, the FTC got wind of it. And, and ended up giving us a call and asked some questions and then went to TrendNet and said, hey, you guys got to fix this stuff. And I think there was, I don't know what, what all happened there, but in the end, um, they, they now have to do security assessments, I believe, against their company once a year for the next 20 years. <laughs> so, um, or, for, or maybe, maybe 15 now. But, um, but yeah, the FTC has a very, very big hammer that they can swing um, against organizations who are just doing, not doing the right thing from a security standpoint. Um, and they will. And so I think you know there would be it would be really great to see. You know, I don't know if laws are the answer, but if there was some requirements that if you're a manufacturer of these types of devices that are going to get plugged into the internet, um, there should be some liability. There should be some um, there should be some recourse against the people who actually manufacture it, who don't give anybody the ability to fix it. 
Now, if you give someone the ability to fix it and you say change your password and they change it and then they change it back to the default or they have the ability to um, patch their system but they, they purposely block the system from being patched, well, then it's on the consumer, right? The consumer is a problem. But if you're a manufacturer and you supply all those that ability to um, and, and you're doing the right things, well, then that's what you should be doing. But if you just completely ignore that and want to sh ship a million of widget X um, to make money and you leave the entire internet exposed like we saw – where there was this massive DDoS attack that took out half the United States um, last Friday, then, then maybe 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 there should be some recourse against those manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And in kind of in a broader sense, what are some of the things that do worry you most about data privacy and security going forward? Um, I would say, you know, vendor vendors vendor risk is a, is a big big issue um, that I run into or I, I think about. Um, you know, as a, as as any organization, you have to you, you have to you can't build everything yourself, right? You you can't, right? I mean, I guess technically you can, but it's gonna it's gonna be very difficult. So you have to rely on security vendors. You have to rely on technology vendors. You have to rely on um, service providers. And um, you know, you know, yes, having a vendor risk management program in place um, is one thing. Right, you know, having that in place where you you send off questionnaires and you ask questions and you ask for the latest vulnerability scans and you ask them to do penetration tests, and you ask for certifications, you ask for all those things. Um, um, there's still that level of risk that that gets um, injected in, in, into any business. Um, and what I what I see from even from a from from a vendor standpoint or even from a compliance standpoint is that there's a big problem with security standards. Right. The big problem with security standards is that, one, the security standards are developed at some point in time, asking people to do things with the knowledge that was put into that standard. Um, they evolve very, very slowly. Most standards out there, the revisions take years. You know, you know, ISO standards, PCI standards, you know, HIPAA, you know, all of those things, those, those frameworks and those standards, they don't get revised as fast as, as we learn about um, new techniques and, and new ways to, to compromise environments and, and new technology that's just sort of popping out of the box that those standards can't address or, or didn't think to address. Um, and then you have the, the, the course of, um, of organizations um, adopting those standards and always implementing the bare minimum, right? the, bare, the bare minimum. Um, and then you have um, the auditors that come in. And if anybody's been involved in an audit or been on the auditor side, which, which I've been on both, um, you know that the audits are designed to produce the results that the organization wants to produce in many, in many respects. I mean, an auditor can't look at every single aspect of an environment. They only have a week to be there, or they have two weeks to be there, or sometimes three days to be there. And so it's, it happens very often in, in most, in, basically I've seen every industry, that when the auditors show up, um, there's a bit of a dog and pony show that happens, and there's preparation that takes place before that. Um, and so... And then, then you sort of had you sort of have those three things I spoke about. You know, the standards don't evolve. People implement the bare minimum. The auditors are managed, um, and now you have adversaries that evolve, and you have adversaries that evolve and, and can read the standards. Can they know what people are doing um, in those world in those worlds, and can and can look to find ways to circumvent it, and can look to find new ways to attack. And I've seen this in various industries. You know, payment industry is a great example of that. Um, you know, they all, with all the, the PCI standards, one that I actually helped author, um, that are in place, yet we still see these massive compromises of, of, of credit cards and consumer data. You know, why is that? And 
you know, you know the, the organizations are using PCI compliant software, um, and they have PCI compliant environments um, that, that are being compromised. Why is that? Well, it's because it's 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 the standard. It's the problem with the standard. The the world of, of just relying on standards themselves. Now, I'm not saying every company does that. Um, I mean, many companies. You know, in my world, how I how I think of it is that there's a there's a tax that we have to pay as an organization. We have to comply with these standards because regulatory bodies and and our and our customers and our partners are are requiring us to. Perfect. We are going to comply 100% to those standards, and we're going to meet or exceed. Um, those areas, but we're not just going to rely on on what we're told to do um, in those standards. We are going to do many, many, many things um, above and beyond um, what those say that we should be doing. Um, and you know, that's you know, that's something we have to do. But we're going to have to do because people are telling us to do. Um, but I think if using the hacker mentality, I don't like to be told what to do, <laughs> um, and don't tell me what to do. So we're, we are going to um, we're going to we're going to evolve beyond that, um, and, and, and not evolve beyond that, but do. Um, do much more beyond that. And the successful organizations out there that you can sort of point to that are sort of world-class in security um, do exactly that. Yeah, and one of the things when I think about, you know, how to kind of address that problem, building a security program that you've done both as a consultant and now as a CISO, yeah. it's trying to bring in the right type of talent. I mean, right now, I mean, still we have, the statistics are anywhere from $20,000, 20,000 open recs in the United States, maybe a million worldwide for information security people. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you think how do you think we overcome some of those challenges and like you know as a hiring manager now and you've been in several different roles like how do you how do we get past this glut of need so what i'm going to say is that most people who say that they can't find good talent actually don't look for good talent the people who are in hiring roles like my myself my job here at uptake i would say in the where i'm at today about 15 to 20% of my time, I'm recruiting where I'm at today. Uh, when, I was, when I was at Spider Labs, about 40% of my time, I was recruiting and building my team. Um, most people in leadership roles who run in, or in technology, not in you know, technology, um, if they say they can't find good talent, it's because they haven't looked um, and they haven't gotten out there to, to find them. How I actually find good talent is that I go to hacker conferences. <laughs> I, go to, I go to meetups. I talk to people. And I've been doing that for years, and I've built a massive network of people that I know all over the world, and I know what their skill sets are. So when I need a role, when I need someone, I need the best person. It may not be the best person in the entire planet, right? If I, I could ask 10 people who are the best person in this one niche area, the person I, I may not be the best person, um, but they are the best person I know, and the best person I know and I can trust. Um, and that's, that's extremely important. And so um, when you hear, like, there's this massive shortage, we, I don't know where they get that from. I actually saw something where it was, like, 1.5 million or something, a shortage. I, it's sort of ridiculous. But, um, but, you know, but also the other, other, other piece is, you know, finding talent is one thing. So I, you know, for, for, se- for senior positions, for leadership positions, finding, you, you have to get out there to find that talent. Now, you also have to have the ability to bring in people and have patience to bring in people who have near zero experience. They have the right mindset. They have they, you, you've you've had conversations with them. You've interviewed them. You put them through some 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 you know some some obstacle courses to jump through to see if they actually have the right mindset and they have the right ability to do security work. And when they do, you need to have the patience to bring them on um, and mentor them and grow them. And and that's and that's how you solve that problem. 
um, thinking that you know I, I, I need five people to do X and I can't find them anywhere, but I haven't left my desk and I rely on my recruiting department to find me those people, that's, that's the reason you fail. Right. What, uh, what are some of the things you do look for in candidates? And what, what is the, the thing that you go, okay, that person's got it? I mean, is, it, is there yeah. something underlying with all of it? So, so there's, a, there's a couple different things. Um, one you know, has to do with um, their curiosity. Um, has to do with, you know, do they just in their in their past, you know, whatever years, you know, maybe it's just when they were in, were in college. Maybe we, you know, it's someone who's just brand new out of school, or it's maybe it's someone who is um, two or three years, or maybe there's someone with 15 years. You know, when when you look at their resume and you look at what they talk about in their career and like you know what their experiences have been, do they just talk about, you know, the things that they did because they were told to do it, um, or do they actually explore um, and, and try to in, Come up with new things on their own. Do they reach out? Do they do they go to you know, join some open source community to develop code and into an open source project? Do they start a project themselves? Do they go and they they do some research and they speak at a conference? Um, I look at that those attributes um, rather than just saying, "Hey, I went to school and I got a computer science degree from the best school in the world." If that's all that's on your resume, don't apply. Right? That, that's that's not exciting to me. Um, I know, you know anybody can go. Um, and, and get a degree, um, but it's really what you've actually accomplished outside of that, um, and what you, which influence you, you've, what, what, what influence you've had, and what influence you've actually, you, you know, tried or even attempted to do in the world around you um, through that, through that ability. And that's that's what I look for. Mm-hmm. And kind of along those uh, same thoughts, you know, is there a particular set of skill sets that you think, you know, when it comes to IR, pen testing, auditing? Uh, just general infrastructure that is more needed or more in desire than some of the others? Is there any kind of ranking that you would yeah. look at? I would say if you're in security um, or you're trying to get in security and you don't understand or you don't have a very high proficiency in the building blocks of internet technology, then you need to spend time there. That's that's the that's a big skill. Um, understanding how DHCP works, how DNS works, how routing works, how access controls and firewalls work, like how, how you know, all, how routing protocols work, how yeah. understanding like the core, like take away security completely from, from the world, like security itself before security became an industry. Um, the world existed, the internet existed with all of that core and technology. Understand how mail works. How do you, how, how does you know, SMTP work? Understand how all of that works. At a, at, a, at a fairly high level, you know, you, you don't have to be an expert in it, but you under, need to understand when you get into a conversation with someone and you're talking about security or someone puts a very complex architecture in front of you, you need to know how that works before you, before you try to embed security into it or apply security um, into it. And so that's, that's a big piece. I, I often run across folks in the security industry that understand how to run hacking tools, but they don't actually know what they're actually doing or they don't understand you know sort of the underlying technology behind it and so that's that's extremely important i would say learning a develop a programming language um is is also a a, a great skill to have there's lots of things that happen in in the in the infosec world where folks that work for me or in work for me we've we've identified a problem or we've identified something and and how we fix it is either an extremely manual arduous process to, to basically fix it or keep up with what needs to happen needs to happen or you actually write a tool to do it um, and having the ability to sit down and write a tool that can do something 
you know, whether it's in Python or, you know, you know, or in C or C++ and like, or Java or something, something you know, um, having the ability to write something the, um, is extremely important. You know, learn a programming language. And, you know, kind of when, when you look at the industry, um, what's the one piece of advice that you see that's continued to be kind of given out that is that emperor has no closed moments for you, where you look at it and go, why do people keep saying this and regurgitating this when it might not be true? Oh, I don't, I'm, that's a, that's a tough one because I don't, I don't know. I don't I mean, um, and what do people give as, as advice to security folks? I think actually this one, this one's, actually I would say this is a bit, this is the largest one. So maybe we can sort of rewind a little bit. Um, the, Probably the piece of advice, or advice, or sort of um, sort of a stance that lots of folks in the information security community—not lots of folks, but there are some people who have this have this mentality—the um, notion that people need to ask per- for permission in the community to talk about something or to research something. Um, there's this there's this hierarchical sort of world that exists that if someone already did research on a topic, then they own it. And that you shouldn't embark, and you shouldn't try to do something and dig deeper. Um, this happens quite often. Um, it happens sort of like in social media quite often. Um, you will see someone who gives a talk. You know, they're very passionate about it. They were very interested in X, right? You know, you know looking at um, home automation, and they did a bunch of research. They found flaws in it. They came up with ideas on how to make the world better around it. They spent lots of time, and then they give a presentation at a major conference, and. During their presentation, um, they cite some other people, right? But they don't cite the one person who has a big mouth. <laughs> um, and they didn't realize that this person actually even did research, but this person has a very big mouth and likes to talk. Um, and likes to. And then you see this person basically go from someone who did extremely good work in this space and was very passionate and, and contributed, got on stage and contributed to the community, and they get, they get sort of torn down because they forgot to cite or they miss they didn't cite some work that someone gave because they did it four years ago. Um, and, and this person's research presumably was built upon that person's research. So I think the, the notion that you need to ask for permission, I think, of course, you should cite other research where you can. But the fact that you need to be worried um, that you get cite everybody um, when you're, I mean, you know, the, the world's, a, it's a big world in our community. And some people don't publish things in the, in, 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 we're not, we don't have lots of scientific journals in the information security world. A lot of them are, um, uh, hacker mailing lists and things like that, or, or undocumented hacker conferences like ThoughtCon. We don't we don't publish our talks, so someone could give a talk on something at ThoughtCon and hundred you know two hundred people saw it, but there's no documentation about it. And so the ability to say that you need to have permission to get up and, and think about something and ask questions, don't you don't need permission, just do it. And kind of a related question: What advice do you find yourself giving most about cybersecurity? Um, I think it has a lot to do with. Um, Reflecting back on the basics and thinking of ways to think of things in a very simple way before overcomplicating problems. You know, the world that we live in today, especially in, in the world of you know, when you think of like cloud and, and IoT and a lot of those, a lot of that technology, often people think of it as very complicated problems. But when you sort of peel back the layers, um, they are in many cases the same problems we were dealing with 15, 20 years ago. And so um, not trying to overcomplicate things and use very complicated techniques and tools and new vendor inventions in many cases to solve sometimes that something that may be a very simple problem. 
um, to solve. And, you know, if somebody is kind of like getting started out in the cybersecurity industry, what is some of the advice you might give out to them? Is, what, what's something they should be looking forward to? Um, I would say the advice that I would give is, is choose something that you're interested in, right? And, and, and obviously learn the basics first, but then choose something you're interested in and go very deep. Go as deep as you can. Um, it's it, it oftentimes, you know, you know, if you're very passionate about something, you have a higher interest in it, you can go a long way. I mean, you can you can become the expert or one of the experts in a specific topic or a specific part of the part of um, a very niche area, and there are, there's lots of opportunities for, for folks who can who can do that. Um, you know, it's one thing to become a generalist in lots of things, but if you want to separate yourself and sort of um, rise above the pack um, in in our in our industry, it's go very deep and, and find something you're passionate about and um, and discover something in that space. I guess it's somewhat related, just maybe in my pair up well with that, but if somebody feels they're stuck in their in their career and they are kind of beating their head against the wall and they don't know where to go, what would you, what advice would you give them in that position? Um, go out and meet people. That's probably the best advice. You know, go to go to hacker meetups, security meetups in your in your in, this, in your area, um, attend conferences, talk to people, um, meet people. That's that's the best way to get out of your out of your rut. And probably close up in like one of the last questions. But if you had a, if you could time travel and go back and talk to your twenty uh, five year old self, that guy that's getting out of Anderson, what would you uh, what would you tell yourself? Probably would. Eh, I don't know. That's a that's a that's a really good question. I often I often don't think about the past too often. I think about the future a lot. Um, um, if I was to go back go back in time, and and talk to my twenty five year old self. Um, I guess I would say, you know, you know, use your, you know, you know, use your instincts. Um, continue to use your instincts. Don't second guess yourself. Um, you know, when you when you think of think of some, something's the right way of do, doing something, continue down that path. Um, I did that very often in my career, and I did second guess myself and sort of you know weighed with a decision, um, and then just went with my gut, um, and it proved to be very successful. Well, great. Well, Nick, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we'll put a lot of these information on some of the things you referenced in the show notes, particularly around ThoughtCon and I Am the Calvary. But where, you know, what are some of the other things that you're working on where people can find you these days? Um, probably the best way to find me is on, is on Twitter. That's, that's probably the best way. Um, I get an a, a exorbitant amount of spam on LinkedIn, so don't use that. Um, it'll take me, I, I do get back to everybody who sends me messages if you're not trying to sell me something um, on LinkedIn. Um, but today it takes, it takes me quite a while because I'll, I'll log into LinkedIn, I'll have like 45 or 50 messages a week okay. coming in there. Uh, so it takes some time. Great. Yeah, I'll put uh, put some of your other information in the show notes that go out. But I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.